Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Ina Tissen from Remover, and we're going to be talking about their direct air capture facility as part of our Dirty Cash series. Welcome to the show, Ina. Thanks you so much, and thanks for inviting me. Good to hear from you. Right, so you are doing something which I think is perhaps a bit under-publicised at the moment, because you have got a quite monstrous direct air capture facility, which is up there with the largest in the world, as I understand. And yet, this isn't something that is necessarily as widely known as many of the competing plants, right? That's correct. That's correct. We, we are a company that focuses on industrializing of ducks. It means that we, we are targeting to build a 1 million ton plant before 2030. So, so at the moment, we have targeted to, to have the, the 1 million ton plant in operation in 2029. Okay, so the the competition, as I understand it, you've got the bison plant in Wyoming, which is done by can't remember who who's that one? Arc Carbon Capture. Arc Carbon Capture, do you say? Yeah. Okay, and then you've got the Permian Basin one, which is done by Carbon Engineering, and that's in West Texas oil field for, and that's a so. The one in Wyoming is a class six well, right? It's a disposal well, but the one in West Texas is a production well. So they're designing this to push oil out of the ground, right? And then you've got Pineworks, which have also got, so they've got their Helsheddy plant, which is a reasonable size, but it's not in the same scale, is it? The Helsheddy plant is quite a lot smaller. Than uh, the, the, hell, the mammoth plant that they are currently constructing is 40,000 tonne per annum. And, and of, of course, we will also do a scaling up to that million ton plant. And we, we are building a 2,000 ton plant first in Iceland, and then we build a 100,000 ton plant in Iceland, up, and then we go to the 1 million ton plant. Okay, so are you building your own technology, or is this like a kind of McDonald's where you get somebody else's technology and then you, you just operate it? What, what we did in 2021 when we founded a company was that we, we had the advantage that we could go out and scan. We were technology agnostic, so we went out and scanned all the different technologies. And where we tried to find a relatively mature technology, environmentally friendly, it's kind, kind of second generation technology that would be suited to, to scale up to million ton scale in this decade, right? So, so, so we, j- j- just for the humanities graduates that don't understand physics or engineering, yeah. you want to give us a, a quick rundown of the different technology stacks that are available? Because there are two fundamental technologies, aren't they? Yeah, you have the, well, basically, the very big helicopter view, you have on, on the less more mature technologies, you have chemical capture, which is the most advanced and most mature at the moment, which is typically used by carbon engineering and Kleinbergs. I mean, when you, when you, well, hold on. I mean, you're saying that I, I would break those two down because they're, they're, they're very different technologies, aren't they? So, carbon engineering technology is dates back to about the 1930s. You say it's advanced. I mean, it's, it's advanced in terms of it's got a high technology readiness level, but it's yeah. very, very basic in terms of its chemistry and engineering. You, you know, you're yeah. looking at high, high school chemistry and, you know, the process engineering is very, very basic as well. You know, you know, they're taking stuff which is, you know, 100 years pedigree. It's kind of like horse-drawn DAC as far as I'm concerned, right? Whereas Climeworks has got, it's a low-temperature sorbent process. So you've got little pellets of things like polystyrene packing chips that you get when you buy something that's, you know, electronics off the internet. And then uh, they will absorb CO2 
from adsorb CO2 from the air and then it's released from steam and then your but your distinction you, you describe those as chemi- chemical and then you've got another class that you're exists yeah you are sure that there is many different ways of classifying this there is chemical capture and physical capture and obviously we are using physical capture when you use zeolite we use this microporous mineral called zeolite which is widely used in other parts of the industry and that's a physical capture of the co2 molecule which has it its advantage on the fact that the, the binding there is relatively weak compared to a molecular binding which you use typically for chemical capture the okay. other way, yeah. So the other so way, it's a, it's a physiosorption process, right? So you've not yeah. you're not creating a chemical bond between the substrate and the CO2. You're creating a physical bond between the substrate and the CO2. So it's like catching peas in a sieve as you wash water through the sieve to clean the peas, right? So the water you, goes through the sieve, and, and and the CO2 is the, like the peas, and they get they get stuck in the colander, and then you've got peas, and all the water's gone down the sink. So it's a similar process to that, right? Yeah, pushing the CO2 off again once it's bound is very easy, right? Yeah, you want to do the regeneration of the of the absorbent as energy efficient as possible. And I guess uh, most of the listeners they know that production of hydrogen is quite energy consuming due to the fact that it takes a lot of energy to release the hydrogen molecule from the water molecule when you do the electrolysis, right? It's a very strong molecular binding. The advantage that we have when we only have a physical binding between the CO2 molecule and the zeolite is that it only takes a quarter of the energy to release the molecule compared to a molecular binding. Okay, now that's the advantage, but people who've been to Norway will be aware that it's not the most dry and sandy country in the world. And my understanding of uh, the problems with this approach is that the zeolites tend to be quite water hungry right so you tend to co-produce a lot of water and so your binding energy can't be considered in isolation as the materials thirstiness for water right so do do you do you find that you waste a lot of energy producing water that you don't need because norway is already quite wet and i think that's the that's the problem you have to solve right and that is isn't it, isn't it isn't it fundamental right? i mean you say it's a problem you have to solve isn't it a bit more like gravity where it's just like an yeah. insoluble fact of life i think it's definitely a fundamental problem you need to solve and and this is probably why this hasn't been used very widely for for carbon capture before zeolites but this is also the problem that has been solved with the patents that are in place through or partner, technology partner, green cap solutions, because they have developed a duct technology using zeolites for the greenhouse industry, small scale. They are currently on their fourth pilot. Currently, they are running a 50 ton per annum module on the west coast of Norway, where they have actually solved this problem. And basically what they are doing when it comes to removing the water, because you, you have to remove basically all the water before you take it into the zeolite to 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 do absorption of the CO2. So what they are doing is that they use the very dry outgoing air from the zeolite beds, which has been, uh, yeah, from the zeolite beds, and they dry the incoming humid air with, with the outgoing very dry air. So they use basically close to zero energy on taking away the water, and they do it without producing water. That We have seen that some of our peers, they have tried to use zeolite and had the idea that they wanted to produce water 
that takes a lot of energy, right? So it's it you don't it doesn't go around. It's not it's not worth it, right? So so you have to be able to take out the water without producing it, to keep it in 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 a gas phase all the time, and that's that's the that is solved so by. How do you use how do you use dry air to remove moisture from wet air? I don't understand that process. Yeah, you you have a okay. If you take the, the big process is like it's like this more or less. You take um, you take incoming the incoming air is relatively humid, right? And you dry that using a combination. You do use zeolite beds and the very dry outgoing air to take out the water. You cool it down because the performance of the zeolites is is best when it is relatively cold, right? So you have very cold. The adsorption of the CO two is done at minus 30 minus 40 degrees and and it's basically air uh, where you so you you do f- the full absorption of the cellulite bed you take out the co2 and when you return the air out you you pass another cellulite bed which is is designed to take out the water on the incoming side so you actually so you have own, swapping so, process there on the inside okay so there's a lot to unpack there that I want to understand better. So you say minus 30, minus 40. I mean, there's only a couple of places in the world that you're going to get minus 30 or minus 40 outside of a, you know, industrial environment. So that would be Antarctica in the center of Antarctica in the winter and, you know, in very extreme locations in the Arctic. So certainly not most of the Arctic never gets that cold. There will be parts of the Arctic get that cold for parts of the year. Whereas the, the Antarctic is generally much colder and indeed goes colder even than four, minus 40, right? Yeah. It, it's so not, where are you going to build this? You don't, you don't need to have an outside temperature. You, you typically, you design it for 10 or 20 degrees, right? But you have a cooler involved in the system, right? So you, when you take the incoming air, you, you do a heat exchange of the incoming air with the outgoing cold air from the process plant. So you take the temperature from 10 degrees down to minus... 30, 40 degrees uh, using a heat, a big heat exchanger. And well, then this, this is exactly my concern with the zeolite. So what you're basically saying is that you've got a quarter of the binding energy, but then when you actually look into all of these extra process steps you need, so you need an extra drying step, which you say doesn't cost a lot of energy, but it must have at least an energy cost of manufacture, even if it doesn't have an energy cost of use. So to make that work at any scale, you've basically got to process a substantial part of the atmosphere. Even if you're completely removing CO2, from the incoming air, then you've got to process approximately half the at- atmosphere to get rid of a doubling of CO2. Okay. So you're basically looking at the, you know, half 50% of the atmosphere of the planet, you've got to cool down to minus 30 or minus 40. You know, doesn't that have a, an overwhelming energy penalty that just makes the whole process unviable? Or do you think no, that that's, that can be done? Actually, not because you are doing these steps very energy efficiently. You know, you have, you're using the, the outgoing very cold air from the process plant to take the temperature down from from the outside temperature to minus 40 degrees typically 35 or 40 degrees minus and then you just use the cooler for the last three to four degrees so that's the only cooling effect you're using from typically minus 40 to minus 44 or something so so the the cooling capacity is not substantial in this and then when you come to the to the regeneration is also done very energy efficiently because basically you 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 do absorption in one bed at the time and uh, you do the absorption at, at, at typically very cold temperatures you will have like typically 
five or ten process trains as part of our approach, right? So you will always have one bed in regeneration. And there you typically use the 200-ish degrees to regenerate and, and release the CO2. When you have thin... So you're heating up the bed to 200 degrees centigrade yeah. to release the CO2, right? Yeah. But that is, what's the heating method? Are you using steam or microwave or what? No, it's, it's just electric heating. So, so you use this, this, this plant is totally electric. But the only time you heat it but up... Why would you do that? Because, I mean, yeah. 200 yeah. degrees, you can get geothermal energy that's 200 degrees centigrade, and you can get that with a heat pump. It's, it's a little... Well. It's a, you use a heater for the... You use a heater for the fan in, in the ventilation system to basically heat it up to 200 degrees. But, but you only do that... That's important to underline, Andrew, that you only do that heating up to 200 degrees the first time. You only use that energy when you start up the plant. Because as soon as you have one bed in regeneration, you, you actually just swap the energy between the different beds, right? So the only thing you are topping up is the losses you have due to bad insulation, for instance. And you have some losses due to the fact that you have, you have quite a lot of CO2 in the next door bed, which is going to be regenerated. And so you need to your, use that energy for that topping. So your, your system, there's two ways of doing this fundamentally, right? So you get some systems like Climeworks, which are static systems. So all of the material stays in place. And then you've got another, another type of system, which works like a Gatling gun. So you've got like a big rotating apparatus, and each part of the process is done a different physical position. So this thing goes round and round like a merry-go-round, and you get adsorption at one step and then desorption at another step. So does yours stay fixed in, in situ or, or does it move around like a merry-go-round? No, I think it's, it's, you know, this is a solid sorbent technology. It's much more like the Climberse technology, but we don't use amines. We use zeolites as an absorbent, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is that there are still two ways of doing it. So either you have like a large physical object, right? Something a little bit like an oil barrel or even larger, right? And, and those will be fixed together normally on some kind of rotating merry-go-round type apparatus like a roundabout uh, you know in a kid's playground where the roundabouts yeah, go yeah. round and round right mm -hmm. and then in the climb work system they're all fixed together in a rack they don't physically move okay yeah. and yeah. so the steam is introduced in the climb works process while the sorbent bed remains stationary in position yeah. in your system does the sorbent remain in its chamber and remain fixed in position or does the um, or, or do the sorbent carrying vessels move around in the process? No, it's it's totally static. It's, it's a stationary it's, process, it's, right? Zeolites is you you locate the zeolites in in large beds, as we call it, beds of zeolite. They are totally yeah, static. yeah, yeah. I mean, all of these processes are fixed bed processes, pack bed processes, but they some of them have moving. Right. <laughs> the components are moving around and you're saying that yours is fixed. Yeah. So you, you say that you're working with a technology provider. Have you got an exclusive license or will we see many other people with similar technologies or exactly the same technology uh, yeah, we have, spru we, sprouting up? Yes, we have exclusive perpetual global license for, for large scale dock using cellular patterns that uh, Greencap Solutions have. Okay, and so you're going to remain an independent company from GreenCap. They're going to remain as an R&D company, and you're going to remain as an industrial developer, right? Yes, they will focus on typically greenhouses. They will focus on in the industry, industrial solutions, but small scale. Okay, we focus so they're going to keep they're going to keep doing what they do, but you're going to do a new type of thing 
taking their technology to this this large scale DAC use that they haven't previously focused on, right? That's the, the business model for them. They're, you're you're yeah. breaking a new market for them, right? Basically, basically, yeah. Okay, fine. Um, and how established is this company? You mean remover or green cap solutions? Well, both. It'd be interesting to hear your answer for both. I think uh, your green. I think, as I mentioned, green cap solution. They were established in 2016, and they are currently at their fourth pilot. So they are relatively. Okay. They are relatively well developed. They have a strong industrial owner in Stavanger, uh, and Remover was established in 2021. So you're 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 quite a new company, right? We are quite new, and we were technology agnostic. So we we somehow scanned all the, the different technologies and, and tried to find the most attractive one, and we ended up with zeolites. And and it, when you work with zeolites, it's difficult to avoid the patterns that Green Cap Solutions have. So we are using okay. bases, but we we are developing them. We are further developing them, and we are also making our, our own IP related to the large-scale industrial process that we are developing. That we so who, who is doing your front-end engineering design? Are you doing it yourself, or are you doing it, or are they it, doing it for you? It's done by ourselves. Yes, yes. And okay. we use so, engineering companies that the most recognised engineering companies here in Norway to help us out. Okay, so Norway's got long tradition shipping oil and gas and chemicals, right? So you're well set up for these large industrial processes. It's not like a it's not a software-led economy, is it? It's, it? You basically pump things around. That's what your economy does, right? I think um, that's, the, that's the advantage we have, right? Because we are coming from, from the large capex industry. Our team is coming from the large capex industry. We have been working with LNG terminals. We have been handling gases for, for 20 plus years, right? So we know how yeah. to do these large projects. But, it, but, it's, but it's not just that, is it? Because it's, you know countries are good at different things, right? China is very good at lightweight manufacturer and to some extent at basic industrials and certain types of extractive industries. It doesn't, for example, have a you know international excellence at agriculture, for example, right? So you're, the fact that you're Norwegian means that you have you know a, an what's called in economic terms an external economy of scale. There are things that your country is good at, right? That makes sense to, to make this. You know that that's one of the reasons why this economic endeavor might make sense for Norway. So are you planning to physically locate your plant in Norway or is it just not suitable? I think Norway is an attractive place to build duck and that's basically why we started Remover out of Norway because we have competitive advantages in Norway. We have green energy in the grid. We have a very well-developed carbon capture industry. We have the most advanced test center at the technology center at Monster. And we have a very well-regulated Norwegian continental shelf, right, for storage of CO2. Well, okay, let, let me explain why I think that, that yeah. I, I can see problems with using Norway, okay? And the biggest yeah. problem is it's wet, and your technology doesn't like water, okay? So why don't you go and locate this, for example, in the dry valleys in Antarctica? That would be an obvious way of doing this, where you don't have that water problem. I wouldn't, you know, you know when you're going to use zeolites for, for, for a duck, you have to dry the incoming air anyway. You have to remove this, the water anyway before you take it into the zeolite. So it's there are okay. We we it's not very dry in Norway. It's not. I think the northern hemisphere is well suited for for our process plants. That's not okay, the problem. But, but for you, sure, you can put it in the Gobi yeah. Desert, for example, which is a lot drier than Norway and still pretty cold. You could put it in the Gobi Desert, but then you would have a cooling issue. In addition, so there is always some optimization, but okay. it's not. It's but not you like think on balance, Norway is, you know, good enough. It's a reasonable place to locate that, right? From a climate perspective, it's it's totally fine. Yes. Well, well I'm talking about it from an industrial 
point of view? Uh, I mean, from, from, an from an industrial perspective, from a political perspective, from a, uh, let's well, say experience I'm, with large. Well, I'm, I'm, well, I'm specifically talking about in terms of how how cheaply you can run your plant from an energy point of view, right? So, for example, if you had a you know, if you're trying to run a grain dryer, you wouldn't want to put it in a wet country, would you? Oh. Like great, trying to dry, dry grain in the jungle is never going to be as easy as drying in the desert. So, of course, when, when we started up the company in 2021, the energy prices in Norway were fantastically low, right? And we, we even had totally green energy in the grid. So, so this is what's affected, let's say, two years ago. Now, now the picture is totally different. So, so, so I wouldn't say that from an energy no, price always, point. It's always high, highly dependent on hydro, isn't it? That's where you get your end, energy from. Absolutely. So you, haven't, you have no nuclear, do you? And I don't think you've got a lot of wind. No, but we, we can produce very reasonable wind energy in Norway, for instance, with a low cost. But it's, it's you know, you have the battle between climate and nature, which you wish, and, and, and indigenous people. So we, we have challenges also to build out reasonable renewables. So you have, Sa you have Sami in the north, don't you? That's correct. That's correct. So to be clear, the Sami are not, so they're not like a, like a, a European race, although they're an Asiatic race. They predate the the settlers who are agriculturalists, right? They're nomadic herders who have been in the Siberian area. They came from um, uh, from East Asia because, it, like people, people think of like Asia being or Eurasia are being quite a physically large continent, but obviously at, near near the poles, it's a lot smaller. So you know, the Sami's range as a herding people can go all the way from Siberia up to Norway without you know traversing. What, you know, they can go past multiple time zones, but they're not covering that far physically. And so for, for them, the, the Arctic or the peri-Arctic region has been the same for them, you know, since they've been in the area. And Absolutely. you guys are like, the, you're the newcomers, aren't you? you, they, they, yeah, you we are the newcomers. And they, and they are using a lot of the land, of course, for their reindeers and their traditional, let's say, use of the nature, which, uh, which is fine. So we, then we need to find a balance on how we work together with, with them and how we can do this in a sustainable way also with regards now, to i understand from my work on solar geoengineering that the sami's political campaigning has been very effective at stalling work on solar geoengineering and so do they have an ideological opposition to carbon dioxide removal and if they do does it form a big obstruction to your ability to develop the technology and deploy it in northern norway and you know other the northern parts of other yeah. scandinavian countries i i would have to speculate, but I don't think they have that. But we, we have seen that there is challenges to build out onshore wind in Norway because it, there is a conflict there with the, with the Samis. We haven't seen, you know, there is, no, there is no CO2 removal plants basically in the north of Norway at the moment. Not, not in Norway, not in Sweden, not in Finland, not in Russia, as far as I know. So we haven't seen any opposition to that. But it's, it's for sure they are, they are a very important stakeholder, which we have to then, uh, take into account, right? So where will the plant physically be built? Well, we are testing the technology. The, the fourth pilot is being tested at Mongstar next year. That's, you might have seen that news that Norway backs. The, 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 it will be the first test of Norway. First test where the Norway, Norwegian state supports direct air capture, which is important for us. It will, it will also be the first duck test at the technology center at Mongstar because they, are, they have only been doing CCS up to now. So that's important. So this is... This is I think yeah. people are not going to be familiar with the location names. So if you could um, clarify where yes. in Norway you mean, I mean, you, is this off, you know, on the 
coastal area of southern Norway or what? Yes, sure. This is in the southern part of Norway. It's a long country, but this is in the southern part and the western part. So it's on the west coast. So this is a test center, advanced test center for carbon capture technology, owned by partly by the state. Norway only has a west coast. It doesn't have an east coast, does it? Well, it's mostly a west coast. Yes, very dominated by the west coast. There is there is a little east coast here in the eastern part, but yes. From your okay. perspective, it's definitely just the West Coast. Yeah, so that's kind of not Sami area, right? That's, no, no, that's not, in the, in this the is not Sami area. The Sami area is typically from the middle, the southern to middle and up to the very north. Yeah. Okay. And so where is the plant being manufactured? Well, that that is being, that's, depends which plant you're talking about. If you talk about the test that we are doing at Monster next year, that is being manufactured at the West Coast. If you talk about the two commercial plants, the two industrial pilots that we are building at Iceland in 2025 and 2027, those are being, to a large extent, built in Iceland, right? Because this is this is quite large industrial plants. It's not you can't just ship them on a on a container on a ship from from Asia to to Iceland. So uh, so you have to do a quite a lot of. The, you can do some pre-assembly and pre-production, but they, to a large extent, it's built at site. Like IKEA furniture, right? Um, yeah, you, you kit, could, but then you have to. Yeah, build. you could use that terminology because this is not rocket science, right? It is big industrial fans. It is a lot of ducting. It is a cooling machine. And it is large heat exchangers. And there is so beds. It's all standard much. stuff, but you have to bolt it together on site, right? Exactly. And we, you, said, you said this place, I- Iceland. Do you mean, are you talking about Iceland, the country, or is it Iceland uh, I- part of? Yes, Iceland, the country, yes. We're climbing. Okay, so yeah. Is this where you're going to build your scale plant in Iceland? Yes, this is where we are going to build the in- large scale industrial plants. The first one we are what, building. Why would you do that? Because Actually, if you want to build duck right now, uh, Iceland is the only place where you have access to both green energy in the grid and storage right now. Okay. So, so, so this, and of, of course, you also have um, the front runners up there. You could put it like that. Climbers are there already. They have paved the way for us, which is great. So we will locate our plants very close to to them up there in in collaboration with Carbfix and OnPower, which are the I- the storage partner and and the geothermal plant pro- so, power company. So you're not responsible for um, the storage section. You're just responsible for the capture section, right? You're going to rely on a third party company to do the storage when you do it at scale. Well, I would say that you we we build own operate the plant, so we buy the storage as a service. And so when you're when you're doing this, obviously you're it's a commercial company, right? But are you funded by the government or are you set up with private money or and will you have private customers for disposal of this or are you targeting the government sector how does your commercial model work you know at a high level it's a fully private company but of course as most other duck companies we will have access to a substantial amount of soft funding either we are working in 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 europe or in the us so i think for for the project as iceland uh, I think we typically qualify for for the EU Innovation Fund, so that's that would be part of the funding plan we have. But the rest will be will be external funding. Yeah. So describe quite big ambitions, but it's not clear to me how much funding you've got at the moment and how I'm not saying how seriously people should take you, but how far along on your journey are you? Well, we yes. How far are we? We are. 
we have the concept for the 100,000 industrial plant in place. So we are starting the feed process, the feed project. So that's front engineering design, right? So that's basically designing it so that if the plant works, you design it so it's ready to ready to use, as it were, right? Ready to build. Yes, this is for the large-scale industrial 100,000-ton plant. So what yeah. building at Iceland first, which, which starts engineering now in August, is the scaled-down version of the 100,000-ton plant. We scale it down to a 2,000-ton plant, 2,000-ton per annum plant. And we, we build that first so that we can have the learnings and experience and, and, and have, a, let's say, a, a trustworthy scaling up to 100,000-ton plant. And then uh, in 2025, we start on the engineering on the 100,000-ton project, which will be finished and in operation in 2027. So is the plant quite modular in that 100,000 tons is just like 52,000-ton plants or not? No, what we do is that we build... Uh, this is the industry we are coming from. We don't believe in the modular solutions because so we are building large industrial. We are building basically a big duck factory. And, and the reason why we do this is that we, we have, let's say in 2021 and, and early 2022, we were looking into using a modular approach. But what we and what we specifically looked into then was to use the 300 ton per annum modules that uh, GreenCap can provide us with. At the same as we are testing at the technology center at Mongstad on the west coast of Norway next year. We could buy you know, 3,000 of those modules and put it out on a big industrial area, but that industrial area would have to be extremely large, right? We are talking about hundreds of, uh, let's say, we would need like 10, 20 hectares for that. It's, it's a large area, right? While if you do this... That was a big place, right? I mean, to my mind, the problem is the, the cost, the, the energy cost of running a process unit. I'm, I'm coming and- to that. I'm coming to that right. because because if you can if you can imagine that you place out three thousand modules to build a million ton plant, each of these modules would have to contain x numbers of valves, transmitters, ducts, coolers, heat exchangers, and a lot of steel. Right, and in between all these three thousand contain modulars modules, you would need to have a spider net of cables and pipes, cables for electricity. Uh, different utilities, and you also need CO2 piping between these these modulars because you have to send it for for, for your logistical system somewhere to, to export it. So so this is it's it's impossible to get the cost on basically. While if you do this in a very land effective 200 by 200, which we use typically for the 100,000 ton per annum, 200 by 200 by 200 meters plant, which you might have seen. Uh, the illustration of uh, it's extremely land effective it's far less components far less materials and you know when you're when you're going to get the costs down it's about getting as close to the material cost as absolutely possible and you can just imagine building one build big pipe instead of four smaller it takes a lot less steel right and this is you are going to take hell of a lot of air through these systems so there is a lot of ducting here oh so, well, yeah but- can also have modules. You say that you've got a spiderweb of pipes, but you can build them all in a line. So you just have an electricity cable running from one of the sites to the other, just like you have fairy lights on a string, right? And you, you can also have 
similar with a you know a gas pipe in in the like my local water pipe the back of my house serves four houses in the street it's only like one pipe but it serves everybody's house right so yeah, there is a lot of houses and there is a lot of modules and there is a lot of transmitters a lot of valves a lot of every component and it's difficult to get the opex down as well because there is there is so much parts that has to be maintained and changed out and it becomes very expensive we have looked we have looked detail into this it's what what we believe if you want to build million ton duck plant you have to build large industrial plants we we don't we don't we could not get the cost down using a modular approach isn't there also the fact that when you have got a modular approach you have learning by doing you're making a lot of things like a climeworks have become more and more modular i remember having this conversation right back with climeworks when they were a very small company and yeah, they were building these kind of that's when they met them at the hinway plant it's called hinway and i my i'd said to them almost word for word you need to stop what you're doing and build a car factory and mm-hmm. over the next decade they probably didn't take my advice they probably had that advice from somebody other than myself but what they did is not get much different from shutting it down and building a car factory so they've gone one way and you're going the other way why why do you think that they're wrong and you're right i'm not saying someone is wrong and someone is right but we have looked into we have done engineering on this and done cost calculations on it and i think maybe for us it was impossible to get the cost down using a lot of modules because there is so many components it's it's so much material involved right and this is if you want to go down to the theoretical minimum cost you have to get the material cost down you get have to get the weight down and you do that by building large i think you can look into the wind industry what are they doing they have really been able to get if if you you can today produce electric power using onshore windmills or offshore windmills particularly onshore very cost effective because they have been building larger and larger and larger windmills right oh, yeah. Hold on, if you're going if you're going to attack the modularity methodology of cost reduction, I wouldn't point to the wind industry because they build, you know, tens of thousands of turbines and yes, each individual turbine has got larger, but they are also very similar to each other. They're very standardized as a technology. And the most obvious comparison is nuclear, which has failed to get cheaper precisely because they're using the design methodology that you're advocating. Now, I'm not saying that it's directly comparable i'm not saying you can't get cost reductions and and yes i get your fundamental scaling idea that you know in the same way you go to the supermarket and you buy a 1 liter um bottle of drink and it's cheaper than four 250 ml bottles of drink because there's less bottle and more drink relatively speaking okay so i get those economies of scale and i yeah. get how the wind turbines are getting bigger but wind turbines are certainly modular even though they've become larger and larger well, I, and larger I, I totally agree they are modular but you try to get them as big as absolutely possible to get the cost and effective cost down and effectiveness up and then you scale in numbers that's what's happening in the wind industry and and the learning rate in the industry and the, and the let's say the rapidness of getting the cost down has been outstanding right yeah wind has done well wind and solar have both done very well but they've both done very well because they have uh, created modularity in an industry which was previously dominated by mm. individually engineered power stations like for a century or more you had individual custom designed plants um which provided electricity you know 
Battersea Power Station in the 1930s, almost 100 years ago, wow. built in, 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 in the middle of London. Odd place to build a power station, but hey. Uh, uh, and, and now you're doing the same with things like Hinkley Point, where you've got these very large, concrete, heavy, you know, the, the optimization is just never as good. You, you're talking about materials cost, but uh, somewhere like Hinkley Point is just never going to be as materials efficient as something which has been produced a thousand times and optimized every single time that's been redesigned, right? There's a degree of wastage in these large projects that is not present in small projects. If you think about things like BIC biros, they're an awful lot more efficiently produced than you know something which is custom built, like a house, for example, right? There's a lot, mm. there's a lot more op- optimization in a in a small manufactured consumer product than there is in something which is built you know by hand and to some extent varied every single time it's built right yeah i I think it's it's of course if if you can build if you have products that are lasting let's say low cost products which are lasting for a short time you can do learning very rapidly by scaling it up and improving it constantly the challenge with uh, with the duck modules which is actually all of them are small process plants you can't build, you can't double them, and you can't do the learnings five times a year, right? Well, I, I actually had, I actually had quite a sort of a provocational idea. I came up with the idea. I think it was during one of these podcasts. Perhaps the most effective way um, improving the economics of DAC would be to pay people to destroy DAC plants, because if you build DAC plants and then destroy them, then you get very good at building them quickly and efficiently. And the actual amount of DAC you get from a DAC plant today makes no difference to the climate at all. Whereas if you pay people to smash up their DAC plants, then what you do is you teach people to make DAC plants very quickly because they want to optimize how quickly they can smash up their DAC plant, right? So, how many plants do you think you'll have? I mean, do you think this learning by doing is going to be a big factor or do you think you're going to build one enormous industrial park where, you know, you've got something the size of a nuclear power station that's going to be doing all of your DAC for you? Typically what we do now, is we have a new plant every second year, right? When we do the upscaling and when we get to the million ton plant, we will get the second million ton plant in 2031, two years afterwards, and then we have one new plant every year. So there will be learnings on the way, and, and I'm and I'm sure we will have learned a lot also about the, about the adsorbent by 2030, right? So, so this this is certainly a game you you have to be open for improvements all the time, and and I and I really hope that our competitors that are using a modular approach will succeed because we depend on it, right? But we have done we have done our calculations on this. We have done we have used our experience with these large capital intensive projects. We we ended up with this industrial approach, which we see that we get to become very cost-effective when you build large and you get the material cost down, right? Okay. You say you're building one plant every two years. I mean, that's not a very high rate of development. Do you think you're going to have enough opportunity for learning and optimization within that? Yeah, I think we will learn a lot here. And, and you can't you can't go like, you know, this is pretty big and capital-intensive projects. To do one every second year is, I would say, Ambitious, for sure. And I think if you see a look across the different duck companies, this is the pace they're at, right? This is this is some this is not mass production at the moment. Okay. So 
how do you think you compare to other companies? I mean, do you think you're, you, you offer your investors a better return? Do you think you're going to offer a lower price to your consumers? Do you think you're just going to be more reliable in coming to market? What, what do you view as your competitive advantage? I would say that the advantage we had with being able to select the most attractive technology was important for us. So, so we have a very environmentally friendly, very energy efficient technology, which is totally, it, it's a totally safe and inert absorbent. So I think part of the feedback that we have received, we have, among other things, we have been invited into one of the duck hubs in the US. So we, we sent our application together with, uh, with the Rocky Mountains Institute now a month ago. The reason why we were invited into to the Dock Hub was basically three reasons. We, we had the experience from the large capital-intensive projects, which is important if you want to scale up. We have a relatively mature technology, TRL level 6, and, and the adsorbent is totally safe. There is no emissions, there is no disposal issues, and nothing can go bang, right? And this will be extremely important when it comes to permitting, not only in the US, but but internationally. Yeah, but sorbent plants don't go bang either. No, I think the fact that we are not using a chemical, right? We are using a micropore stone. We have, we, have a, we have a plant which is totally atmospheric. We have nothing under pressure. It's a big advantage, right? Okay. So could you talk about your personal background and your journey, how you got to this point? Because you're not widely known as an individual within the sort of scientific community. You say you've got an industrial background. I don't view that as being a criticism because scientists don't generally get paid for making stuff work cheaply and efficiently. They get paid for making breakthroughs, which is not the same thing at all. So if you talk to us about your experience and what you bring, both you and your team, it'd be very helpful to understand how you, how you add value to the community. Yeah, I think, you know, my, my background, I have a master in marine technology, so I'm not a chemist like many in the duck industry. I've been working most of my career in, in the maritime part of the oil and gas industry. Uh, I've been 17 years in DNV, working in, in Singapore, in South Korea. In, in, What's uh, DNV? It's, it's a classification society which works with floating in, offshore installations, uh, sh- ships and uh, different kinds of offshore constructions. So LNG terminals and typically LNG terminals, so it's part of it, right? So FLNG terminals. So it's it's yeah. So that's that's where I'm coming from. I've been working with these large projects for for typically seven years in DNV, and I've also been uh, in eight years in in stock-listed Fred Olson Energy, which was actually part of the drilling industry. But I I I I was there as technical director, and I was also for most of my time I was technical director there. What, what I came. Team? And, and my team has, you know, my our CTO, he has a background from from Vatsila working with big LNG terminals, uh, which is basically gas under pressure, right? It's building large industrial plant where you have gas under pressure. That is handling of CO2. And we also have we also have a strong commercial team on the on the fact that our chief growth officer Alex Bell, he's coming from Aguru Carbon Alliance, so he's very well acquainted with the carbon markets. So that's a big advantage. So I think. Across the team, we, we have we have strengths that are a little bit rare compared to some of our competitors, which are typically coming out of academia. Yeah, I, I don't view that as a disadvantage. I mean, from my point of view, if I had a choice between a bunch of oil industry rednecks and a bunch of uh, professors in 20 years outdated clothing, I yeah. would pick the oil industry rednecks to deliver the project every single time, right? Yeah. 
Well, hopefully, goes... we are not, hopefully we are not rednecks, but at least we have a lot of, we are educated people with, used to working with large industrial projects. But, but well, I, what I mean by that is like yeah. the, you've got experience of working on physical, actual commercial plant, yeah. right? That you don't, I mean, academics just don't deal with that. They don't no. have the experience of working. Yeah. Very few work academics, even if they were, I mean, I worked in, my degree is in mechanical engineering, right? And very, very few academics work in a factory environment, right? Yeah. And, and, and that's a, a real loss. I, th I think that's also a little bit of the beauty of Remover is that we have a team that is used to working with these large plants and make them work in practice, right? That, that's, that will be extremely important when we're going to build this new industry. Uh, and I think okay. uh, in, in terms of, I'm not saying we don't have academic support because we, we are used, on our technical side, we have Sintef who has been using, working, you know, Sintef is one of the biggest research institutions in Northern Europe. They have been working with zeolites for 30 plus years in the oil and gas industry, where they typically use zeolites for drying gases, right? So, so, so they have three, three to four doctor engineers working on this. They have very good simulation tools. And when you combine this with the practical experience that green cap solutions have with using zeolites for direct air capture, you have a very, very, very solid team and diverse team working with solid sorbents and zeolites. So do, do GreenCap make their own zeolites? No, they, typically that is commercially available through Grace or Honeywell or Bus for one of the Chinese. But but I think, uh, so this is, this is a, that's the so beauty that, they of make, the, They make the handling, the handling technologies, the, the processes that you then integrate into the feedstuff, exactly. right? GreenCap has four patterns related to how to arrange the system in order to make an effective direct air capture plant. Okay. And the, be the beauty of zeolites, of course, is that it, it is delivered by big companies like Honeywell and Bus Grace, and and it's it's cheap, right? Uh, and it's a very stable adsorbent. That's one of the biggest advantages. It typically lasts for ten years. It's not it's not a consumable, right? It's something that you have for ten years, and then you have to change it out. So it's almost like a capsule item, then, right? Yeah, you could call it that. Okay. What stage are you at as a company? I mean, have you raised all the money that you need for the next stage, or are you pitching for finance? Or now we are pitching right now. Yes, pitching right. Now. Okay. No. So I have to add our usual caveats that we're not involved in your financial promotion. Would <laughs> invest in these risky sectors? Will we have to expect a high risk of loss of capital? Um, are you looking for private funding, or are you looking only for institutional funding, or what? Uh, we are looking now for our combination of soft funding and and from let's say the typical big decarbonization funds potentially some vc funds and maybe some industrial owners yeah it's a combination probably and are you going to be raising money from pre-sales to people like frontier or not we are in pro we are we are in quite advanced dialogues with potential off takers for the for the projects at iceland for the the first project we call Iceland, actually, the 2,000-ton project, and also for the Polar project, which is the 100,000-ton project. So, so we have quite advanced customer dialogues there. And will you be dealing with Frontier and the usual suspects, or have you got some surprise uh, partners up your sleeve? No, I, I think it will be a mixture of the usual suspects and some new newcomers. Okay, so you're actually doing some of your, your own sales because one of the advantages of having a big player like Frontier in the market is that they serve almost like a clearinghouse, right? So you have companies approach Frontier to do their buying 
And so Frontier deal with all the supply in the market or much of the supply in the market. And then they will they they will deal with much of the demand. So the companies, yeah. it just makes it much cheaper and easier for engineering focused companies to find commercial contracts. Is that something you're able to take advantage of or do you not need to? Uh, we would love to take advantage of, of working with Frontier, but for the time being, we have been working equally much with, with other parties. Yeah. And how much of your offtake do you think will end up in the hands of the state? Do you think that it's going to be a large component of state purchasing or not? I think uh, in Iceland, typically, you don't have the state purchasing. It will mostly be voluntary purchasing there. But of course, for the, for the larger plants, the million ton plant, when we go to the US, and I, I mentioned we were invited to one of the duck hubs in, in, in the US, and then, then typically, of course, the state will contribute with their, I think it's 180 US dollar per ton, right? And I, yeah, but I think you will 45Q, see. Q, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's part. So could you tell me more about the DAC hubs? I don't quite understand those. Uh, well, uh, there is, as part of this package, the Inflation Reduction Act, of course, what makes US very attractive at the moment is that it's a combination of uh, support on the capital capex side. So that they are supporting building out 4 million ton duck hubs and the application process was closed a month ago uh, for the first phase. And then they're also supporting on really the 45 queues, right? So they basically pay you 180 US dollars for every ton you remove, which is very attractive, of course. With the US, and it, it's a little bit US are alone on that right now. I think we are seeing that Europe wants to be competitive. And for instance, in Norway, the, the government are now looking into what the possibilities of making a reverse CO2 tax here. So they just came out with a proposal for that, where they actually, we have a we have a CO2 tax coming up in Norway on 200 US dollar per ton. I think Luxembourg is looking at doing something similar as well. I remember being yeah. asked. To, to contribute either directly or indirectly to one of their consultations. That would be very attractive. And that would be very attractive, of course. So I think... I mean, would... the US has done a really good job of cleaning up this industry, right? They've got all of the... Um, well, apart from the Iceland, which was already in place before 45Q, there's been a huge move to centralise this industry in the US because of this 45Q stuff. So they've done a very good job at capturing the emerging industry, right? Absolutely. And they, they are really important for the duck industry now globally when, when they come with these, these incentives that they now have in place. So, so that's, yeah, we look, we, that's, that's great for us, of course. It's important for, for any duck company to be part of the race in the US now. So where do you think the base is going to be? I mean, I guess that you're, although you've got plans to develop in certain areas, you've got to be flexible because the tax and regulatory environment could shift quite dramatically. You're quite dependent on um, these public funding um, yeah. uh, subsidies. And, and, and um, the, you talked about the DAC hubs as being the physical side of the, the Inflation Reduction Act and the 45Q being the financial side, right? And so you have to yeah. be mindful of these incentives and opportunities, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, where are we going to be in the future? I think the way I see this from the helicopter view is that right here and now, it's the Nordics and Iceland, right? Because this is where you have the, both green energy in the grid and you have access to storage right now. But then from 2030 and onwards... But we say that, but I mean, Wyoming's got both. Wyoming's got a load of wind and they've also got a lot of um, class well, the class 6 capacity. They, they don't use the basalts, they use um, saline aquifers. Yeah, well, that, that is possible too, I guess. I think the, the plug-and-play setup that we have in place at the moment in Iceland where you have a very cost-effective storage, 
with no need for liquefaction, for instance, is is very attractive. So, so I. So think, that's you're plugging into Carbfix, is what you're talking about, right? Yes, yes, that's what we are doing, and we have a very strong relationship with Carbfix, which is important for us. Okay, can you talk to me about the financial side of it? So, what's your company worth, and how much money you're raising, stuff like that? Yeah, we are we are raising. I'm not sure if I'm going to go into details, but we are raising uh, typically 20 million US at this stage, and then uh, yes, that's what I can say right now. Yeah. What's the valuation of the company for that 20 million raise? I think the market will respond to that. <laughs> we will see the we will see the result of that in in a few months' time. So it's an individually negotiated uh, investment scheme. It's not like you've got a public offering or anything like that. It's a public offering, but it's it's um, we would of, of course. We don't know the final valuation before we have done the deal, right? Okay, so you you raising funding on the stock market then through an IPO process? Uh, no, no, not public in that respect, but we are going out towards individual investors. Yeah, so sorry, I meant not public in that respect. Uh, so you listed on a crowdfunding site somewhere that people can. Look no, no, at? we are not listed anywhere anywhere yet. No, no, as in, is your off publicised on a crowdfunding site, or are people are just individual no. inquiries for your firm? No, it's not. It's not. We are basically using a financial advisor who is contacting the different investors, and then we are raising the money. You're amenable to individual investors getting in touch with you. So if somebody is interested in putting some money yes, into this industry, absolutely. Absolutely. you're happy to hear from them, right? Okay, yeah. great. Absolutely. Um, fine. Okay, well, I'm supposed to be mocking you and teasing you and being nasty to you, but I'm not finding much that I can do to tease or mock you which is a bit disappointing really i feel like i'm not doing my job very well today <laughs> so um yeah. is there what do you see as your company's weaknesses do you think that there are you know areas that you are less strong on than other companies i guess carbon engineering is well funded they've been around for a while 20 million they're, they're worth a lot more than 20 million now i think so do, do you think you're 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 a bit of a, a laggard in the market is that going to affect your ability to to dominate, no, is it likely that companies like you are just going to get bought up by the bigger companies? No, I think I think our weaknesses is that we have to we, we could be much more visible. I think we 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 are doing some. You're not talk. wrong there. I mean, I've I mean, I've been in this sector for a while, and I haven't heard much about you and what you've done. So no, so that's that's certainly an improvement area. We have now been invited into MIT Sustainability Summit next week to speak about industrialization and the large scale concept. So that was very. I think that will help us to some extent. We are trying to be visible, so that that is important for us. We have a lot of improvement areas, right? We we have to grow our team. We have to constantly work on getting the cost down, like everybody else. So I think uh, the advantage we have is 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 a very is a second generation absorbent and a strong technology, rated right top five. So I think uh, that's that's the big advantage. But for sure, we have a lot of improvement areas. Yeah, I mean everyone needs to improve over time. But what I was asking is like, is there dimension in which you are kind of weak as an organization what would you say would be your kind of weakness um compared to other companies that are operating the space i mean carbon engineering i think have got quite a lot of capital for it so that might be a strength right and whereas yeah. their process technology is pretty basic so that might be a weakness so yeah. how do you uh, how do you see your sort of your 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 company's challenges that are distinct from other people's challenges what, I what, think are, what are you less back other than just being reputation stuff that you said. The, the distinct challenge now is that, of course, we are we were established in 2021, and we are not capitalized up with a serious A yet. So we are, we have relative light on capital. So as soon as we have capitalized the company, we will be in a much stronger position.
well that's a very european problem isn't it i mean american companies are generally a lot better funded than european companies right i think it's i think we have seen strong we have peers in the in 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 switzerland for instance who is extremely good at this so it's yeah to some extent maybe a european problem but we would love to get access to the the river of money in the us and that that's important for us um okay so um i feel we've had a fairly good overview of what you're doing and uh your background and your process technology and your company's plans. Is there anything you feel that we've missed or do you think that we've got a fairly good handle on what you and Remover are all about? Uh, I think we have covered it quite well. Um, I think we have, a, we, have a, we have a second generation absorbent which is, is ready to be scaled over the next 10 years. A very attractive technology. Uh, we have secured sites, power, and, and storage for the plants that we are building in Iceland. So we have a very trustworthy scaling plan. We have been invited into the dock hubs, which is important for us. The U.S. will be important uh, from 2025 and onwards. So I think uh, I think we have covered a lot of the space. I think you were, you did a good job, Andrew. Um, yeah? There's nothing that I can immediately put my handle on and say this is wrong. Um, I, I think that the challenge with zeolites is seeing if they work in practice as well as the the adsorbent technologies and become apparent once um, people have got these plants up and running to see how well they perform in the real world, right? I, I'm, I've got my concerns because I think that something that's so thirsty as zeolites are going to be problematic uh, to make work in the real world. But, you know, I, I might be wrong and they might outperform Sorbents, right? I think I think they might, and I think we have two advantages there. We have we have found a way of taking away the water without use, basically using energy at all. And the second is that we have engineers, very experienced engineers, to used to working with large industrial plants, and and know that they will get it to work, right? So so having that practical experience from the industry is extremely important when you're going to develop new hardware, which we are doing. Yeah, I very much agree with your approach in terms of your HR, that it's much more important to have people who've got experience of delivering real world projects than it is people who are good at publishing fancy papers and getting their name in, names in top journals, because that's just not how you build an industrial plant, right? Industrial plant doesn't care about your impact factor. Um, so I have a lot more confidence in your approach from an HR point of view than I have with a lot of other people. You know, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to insult my academic... Well, I am often trying to insult my academic colleagues, so let, let's uh, let that one slip through. Uh, a lot of them, they might be nice people and they might be clever and they might be, might be well-meaning, but it doesn't mean that they're people I want on a commercial project. And I think that your, uh, your approach of concentrating on people who've got oil and gas experience uh, and are naturally sort of on the enemy side of the situation exactly the kind of people that we need and i've always said that you know I, I don't think we're going to be able to do srm without dealing with the military and the defense supply chain uh, and i don't think we're going to be able to deal with carbon dioxide removal without involving the fossil fuel industry so you're very much the kind of people i want on my team so i'm glad you're involved in it i'm glad you're doing it i've got questions about technology but i'm not smart enough to be able to challenge your fundamental assumptions i think it's really something that we're going to have to see what how it plays out in the market you know do we end up with zeolites becoming dominant in this field or not and i think only time will tell and i think it will. i think we have to be followed the absorbents very closely over the next five to ten years there will there will happen a lot of things and i and i and i think it's it's somehow a joint 
across the duck companies to develop the industry. And I think we, we share on each other, right? Because we all need to succeed in this game. That's It's so important. that well, we I mean, there, there, will, there will be failures. Failures are natural. But the, yes. the comment that I'd make with that is that I don't think that failure is as binary as it's often made out. I think what will happen is that you'll get companies like, for example, Carbon Engineering have done very well in building up the early market for this technology and getting the commercial engagement in a way that a lot of companies just haven't done. But I think their technology is dinosaur and I don't think it will survive. And I think what they'll do is they'll buy companies that are like you once you've got a bit further on. And, and so I think that the success might be by being purchased or having elements of your technology that become successful. So, you know, you might have really good process control systems, but maybe your absorbents, your, your physiosorbents don't end up working as well as you hope they might. And therefore you end up with uh, the company being kind of uh, eviscerated in some way and only bits of it surviving. But I don't think that's a problem because it's a big industry and you can still get pretty rich from selling parts of a company that wasn't fully successful as opposed to relying on, you know, dealing with a company that can only succeed as an independent entity. Because I, I don't think that the independent entity model of success is going to be dominant. And I've worked in tech for quite a long time. So I understand how, you know, selling the, the company for its technology, for its team or whatever, it can be just as successful as selling it as a going concern that actually makes money. I think, I think, yeah, I think you're, you're probably right in what you're saying now. I think what, of course, is important for us is to, is to, to have an impact, to really have an impact on, on, the, on the challenges we have with global warming. And I think for me, it, it's all about being in duck because that's where you really can remove a lot of CO2 from the atmosphere. And I think we, we, we have an advantage coming with this industrial approach where we are coming from here. I think we want to set the standard for Daritech country companies with working extremely professionally with focus on cost and project execution. And I think uh, we want to to let's say over the next year be recognized as one of the leaders and, well, and, and supporters. Let's hope you have a, a pop at that. I mean, you're, you're a company that was relatively unfamiliar to myself until this interview. I guess lots of other people will also be quite new to your brand and what you're doing and will be you know, pleased to see you jumping into the ring and trying to smash carbon engineering in the face, right? So uh, good luck with that. Thanks for coming on, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back when you've made uh, a bazillion dollars and, and bought yourself a yacht or a spaceship or whatever it is that <laughs> the global super rich do now. Thanks a lot for having me, Andrew. It was a pleasure. Cheers. Goodbye. Okay, bye-bye.